Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Barker about her book, That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves, 1260 to 1500, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Welcome to the program, Professor Barker. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So the book was fantastic, uh, very stimulating and interesting. Um, So I would characterize the main premise of the book as follows, and you can tell me um, if I'm getting it right and then elaborate. Uh, The book centers around the slave trade in the Mediterranean and Black Seas in the later Middle Ages. And in this period, slaves from the Black Sea region were being siphoned into two different systems of slavery, European and Mamluk Egyptian. And these, you say, are often treated as separate systems, um, but your book makes the central argument that these systems participated in a shared culture of enslavement. So if that's right, could you sketch out some of the facets of that culture? Yeah, sure. So I'd say both that they're participating in a shared culture of enslavement and that the trades are connected, that they are trading with each other and trading in relation to each other. So they're both kind of culturally connected and commercially connected. Um, So when I'm talking about those kinds of connections, culturally, there are meaningful differences also between slavery in medieval Europe and slavery in the medieval Middle East. But just because they've been studied so separately, I wanted to emphasize the connections between them. So I always start with this. There are differences, but there are also similarities. The similarities, um, the main similarities are, first of all, just the assumption that slavery is legal and morally and socially acceptable. That's something that we're not used to thinking about, but it's something that was kind of taken for granted in both of these societies. So that's an assumption that we have to start with. Um, Also, the idea that slavery is a universal threat, something that can happen to anyone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I give examples of that in the book, right? Um, People who are near the sea are especially vulnerable to this, but even people who are not, if they happen to be traveling, right? Um, If you get captured by the wrong ship in the wrong place, you could end up in the slave market just like you might end up buying slaves in the slave market. So the fact that this is sort of multidirectional and applies to many different people no matter what their background is, no matter what their class is, that's something that's a little bit different than the way that we're used to thinking about slavery. And then the third thing that's important is that this is a, uh, an ideology of slavery that's based on religious difference. So we're used to thinking about an ideology of slavery that's based on racial difference, right? But in this case, um, people, are, people expect to enslave people who are not from the same religious background as them. So Christians can enslave Muslims and Jews and people of other religions. Muslims can enslave Christians and Jews and people of other religions. Jews can enslave Christians and Muslims and people of other religions. But you're not supposed to enslave people from your own religion. So that's part of this interaction between people from medieval Europe and people from the medieval Middle East. Also, they're buying their slaves from the same places, but they're also enslaving each other. Hmm. So maybe we can do a little contextualization here. Um, As we said, the pertinent geopolitical areas in the story are the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Can you tell us a little bit about the different polities that had stamped themselves upon the Black Sea in this region and a little bit of uh, about the cultures and states that they encountered um, when they came to the Black Sea? Sure. So in the the period that I'm talking about, I, I start the book in 1260 and I picked that date because that is the date when the Latin Empire of Constantinople, which was created through a crusade, right, which had Venetians and Franks and other people involved in it. This Latin Empire of Constantinople 
collapsed and was replaced by a Greek empire of Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire, right? So this is a big political shift. It's important for the Black Sea because in order to get access to the Black Sea, you have to go through the Straits, right? You have to get past Constantinople. So whoever controls the Straits controls access to the Black Sea. There's just been a major political change in Constantinople. And so this reshuffles who has the rights to get into the Black Sea, right? So the Venetians were responsible for helping set up and prop up this Latin empire. When you have a Greek empire coming in, they don't want anything to do with the Venetians anymore. Um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so they go with the Genoese, right? So this is um, Genoa and Venice are these uh, two cities, one of them on sort of the northeastern side of the Italian peninsula and the other one on the northwestern side of the Italian peninsula that are rivals for mar control of maritime commerce throughout the Mediterranean, really. Um, so if you're going to cut the Venetians out, but you need someone else to carry your trade, the Genoese are sort of the obvious alternative. So what happens in 1260, which is why I start at this point, is that the Genoese get access to the Black Sea through their alliance with this new Greek Byzantine Empire. The other thing that happens in 1260 happens in Mamluk Egypt. So this is the other major player that I'm interested in. Um, the Mamluk kingdom was not limited to Egypt. This was actually a, a an empire, really. It included Egypt, a lot of the Red Sea coast, and um, what's called in, in Arabic sources, Bilad Sham, which is basically, it's, it's sort of greater Syria. It's sort of the whole eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So that would include what's now um, Syria, but also Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, parts of, of sort of the southern Turkish coast. That whole area um, was either part of the Mamluk Empire or at least part of the Mamluk sphere of influence. So this is a major state, a very powerful state and a very wealthy state. They also had a big dynastic shift in the 1250s and in the 1260s, kind of the really the the founder, sort of leader of this, the, the person who's going to sort of shape into, into a new state, right, takes power. His name is Barkouk. And so he negotiates a new set of treaties with this new empire in Constantinople because he's also interested in the Black Sea. So you have a change of power in Constantinople. You have a change of which Italian shipping and commercial powers are going to be involved with the Black Sea. You also have a change in the this creation of this new Mamluk kingdom, which has a lot of power and a lot of influence and also wants access to the Black Sea. Within the Black Sea, um, the, the southern coast, the sort of Anatolian area, is contested between this empire of Constantinople, and then there are various sort of small Turkish states along the coast, and then in the far southeast corner, there's another Greek empire called the Empire of Trebizond. Um, so that's sort of politically complicated in one way. When you look at the northern coast, there's a Mongol state, the Golden Horde. So this is one of the four successor states of Genghis Khan's conquests, right, that controls a lot of what's now Russia, the Ukraine, into Central Asia. It's a fairly large state. And on the east side, <clears throat> this is the Caucasus region, which has a lot of smaller kingdoms, but the important one, the, the most important one really is the kingdom of Georgia. There's also a kingdom of Armenia there. Um, but they're kind of caught in between uh, the, the Mongol state of the Golden Horde. And there's a second Mongol successor state, the Ilkhanate, in what's roughly now Iran. So these, these uh, kingdoms in the Caucasus are kind of caught in between those and are kind of playing them against each other. And then when you look at the west side, you have what's now Romania and Bulgaria and those areas that are sort of, they're independent states, but they're kind of in the Byzantine sphere. So it's fairly politically complicated. And into this politically complicated arena come the Genoese and the Mamluk traders who are going to establish themselves just in port. They're not interested in conquest. They're interested in trade. So they establish themselves in ports along the coast, and they trade all kinds of goods. The one I'm interested in is slaves, but this is also a major grain export region. So they're buying grain and then bringing it into the Mediterranean. 
and other kinds of goods, um, honey and leather and fish and wax and all kinds of things. And at some point during the story, both the Venetians and um, the Genoese wind up establishing what look like colonies, right? Yes. So the Venetians, after a couple of decades, they managed to negotiate their way back in, right? Um, the Genoese are able to benefit from this moment, though, and so they establish what I would call proper colonies. They control some of these ports. They appoint the government of these ports. They appoint um, a consul, basically, who's supposed to go there and be in charge of running the port and managing all the inhabitants. Um, so that person is appointed from Genoa and goes out for a two-year term and then comes back to Genoa and they appoint someone else. Um, so this works like a colony more or less in the way that we're used to thinking about it. They do still have some kind of relationship with the Golden Horde. They have to allow um, judges to to adjudicate cases just for the local uh, Mongol or Tatar population, and they have to pay some taxes to the Golden Horde, but otherwise they basically have free reign. The Venetians never quite get that level of control. There are substantial Venetian merchant communities that are populous and wealthy. And so on that basis, they have a fair amount of influence, but they don't have control of the court system. They don't have control of the tax system. Um, they don't have administrative control in the ports that they dominate in the way that the Genoese do in theirs. So the, the Genoese system, I would definitely call a colonial system. The Venetian system is, a, is more, I would say, more of a diaspora situation. Yeah. So going towards the ideological foundations of slavery in this period, the uh, the Judeo-Christian religions, as I understand it, essentially assumed that, you know, freedom was the default state of humanity. But each of them uh, developed religious and juridical arguments for how servility becomes licit in a foreign world, uh, so to speak. So um, what were some of the sources and the uh, natures of these arguments? Right. So, yeah, so they, they all, again, this is part of this sort of common culture argument, right? They all agree that the natural state of humanity is free, that that sort of God created people free. But in the real world in which we live, in which people are sinful and do bad things and states make laws to govern that, Slavery is part of sort of the human architecture of society, and that's okay as far as they're concerned. You know, it's appropriate for human governments to make laws. If they want to make laws that create slavery as a status, then that's something that human governments have the capacity to do. Um, the way that's talked about in a religious sense um, has to do with the idea of sin, right? That and that this is the people who are enslaved, they are making the argument that they're being enslaved for their own good, right? That these are people who are not believers in the correct religion and who are inherently sinful. And so they need someone else to force them to follow the correct religion. And slavery is sort of the legal mechanism that allows that religious conversion to happen. So again, this is something that we don't normally think about when we think about slavery. Um, but in this Mediterranean context, slavery is very closely connected with forced conversion. Slaves are expected to convert to the religion of the people who own them. And that does not imply manumission, right? So the idea that slavery is attached to religious difference is religious difference of origin. It's not religious difference of whatever re religion you profess in the moment. So someone who was raised as a Christian and ends up being enslaved in a Muslim society is expected to convert to Islam. And when they convert, they're not manumitted for that reason and vice versa, right? Someone who grows up a Muslim and then is enslaved in a Christian society is expected to convert to Christianity, but they're not going to be manumitted for that reason. But the forced conversion is kind of the, the justification that's being offered for why slavery is something that's licit. Right. And of course, there's a difference, as always, in history between prescription and practice. Yes. And even though, um, you know, enslaved status was supposed to rest on religious difference of origin, in practice, as you document in abundance, this was not always the case. And of particular interest to me was the way in which 
Catholics sort of flagrantly came to disregard the um, Christian status of Orthodox Christians and enslaved them quite uh, freely, um, ironically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. Uh, and I want to add this, this, this sort of prescriptive vision slips in a couple of ways, right? I mean, one thing I just said is there's sort of this expectation of forced conversion. Sometimes they don't, though. And the cases when they don't force people to convert is when they expect them to be ransomed. Um, and you see this actually, especially in Iberia, because there's a, there's a more sort of coherent ransom system there. And so if you think that someone's family will pay a ransom to get them back, then you don't force them to convert because you want to make it easier for them to go back and integrate at home, right? But if there's no expectation of ransom, then there's definitely going to be a forced conversion sooner or later. So that's one area where things may play out in reality slightly differently depending on how people see their interests. Um but yeah, then then there's this question about, in theory, this is based on religious difference. In practice, though, uh, at most times, the majority of slaves in Genoa and Venice during the period that I'm looking at were actually of Orthodox background, right? They were Russian, they were people from the Caucasus, right? Or people from Bulgaria or Romania. These are all predominantly Orthodox regions. And this is where a lot of the slaves are coming from. So this is something which I have some ideas about, but actually I'm continuing to work on. I put sort of my first take on this in the book, but I I don't feel like I've fully grasped exactly what's going on there. The explicit justification for this actually has to do with the Mamluk trade. And this is one of the reasons why the Italian slave trade and the Mamluk trade are so closely connected, right? Um, What you see people writing in the Italian sources is that they will enslave Muslim people in order to force them to convert to Christianity. They will enslave Christian people in order to prevent them from being bought by Muslims and being forced to convert to Islam. So the justification for enslaving an Orthodox Christian from Georgia, for example, is that if we don't, the Mamluks will buy them and turn them, make them Muslim. Right. Um, Which is, interesting. It's interesting that that's sort of the route they choose to go. I think there's more to it than that, because there are some groups of Orthodox Christians who have more success in challenging their status as slaves than others. Greek Orthodox Christians who are enslaved tend to have better luck bringing court cases saying, I've been wrongfully enslaved. I shouldn't be enslaved by Christians because I'm a Christian. Um, Bulgarians who are equally orthodox tend to have less luck, right? So there's there's a question there about there's something to this that is not just about religion. There there are additional layers. Um, and as I said, I sort of gave my first take on that in the book, but I think there's actually a lot more work to do there. Yeah, interesting. Um, and uh, in a similar vein, um, you mentioned that scholars have traditionally. Uh, dismiss the idea that the Mamluks would be enslaving um, people who are of Muslim origin, but your investigation reveals that that is not actually the case. Exactly, right? So you have these these big uh, Orthodox Christian populations in the Black Sea. The Golden Horde is predominantly Muslim, right? And so those slaves tend to show up in Mamluk sources identified either as Tatars or as Turks. Um, but in either case, you know, broadly speaking, in most cases, Tatars and Turks are going to be of Muslim background, right? But there are large numbers of Tatars and Turks who are enslaved in the Mamluk kingdom. So again, there's this question of, in theory, you're not supposed to enslave co-religionists, people of the same religion. In practice, clearly those rules are being flagrantly broken on all sides. So how do they justify this? And I haven't seen as sort of direct and straightforward of a statement trying to justify this um, in the Islamic sources. It comes up later. There are 17th century sources um, that talk about the enslavement of West African Muslims, right? And how that should not be allowed is a violation of law. Slave traders are doing it and that's bad and you should not buy West African Muslims as slaves. 
So it comes up as a problem in the 17th century. The same you know, violation of the principles is happening in the 15th century, but I don't see it being discussed and problematized in the same way as the text, in the text, which again is really interesting that this just doesn't seem to be anything that anyone's worried about. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the text, that reminds me to ask a a more basic and general question. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of sources that your book relies upon? Because they are a very uh, eclectic and interesting group of sources. And then conversely, what sources are we missing that prohibited you in certain areas from uh, proffering answers that you uh, otherwise would have um, if those sources had not been absent? Sure. So the biggest challenge of this book, but also the most rewarding thing about it, was that the the Italian sources and the Mamluk sources are completely different. And putting them together in some coherent kind of way was very difficult. But on the other hand, it caused me to raise all kinds of questions that I would never have raised if I was just looking at one body of sources alone. So the Italian sources are a lot of legal records. Um, Italy, the the Genoese archives and the Venetian archives have big collections of notarial registers. So the notaries are the people who are writing legal documents. Anytime you need a binding legal document, you go to a notary and you have them write it up. So they include all kinds of things. They include you know, house sales and dowries and the creation of companies for doing business and loans and just every kind of thing. But it includes the sale of slaves, rental of slaves, um, manumissions of slaves, all kinds of legal acts that have to do with slaves. And there are thousands of these notarial registers in each place, in Genoa and in Venice. So this is good for statistical analysis, right? You can go through and learn a lot about the slave population and about the slave market from looking at these documents. The problem with it is that these documents are snapshots. You don't really get anyone's story. You don't get any background information. It's just this one act that happened at this one moment in time, and then you have to decide what you can make of that. Um, Genoa and Venice are also very good for tax records. And there's much less kind of narrative discussion of slavery, um, stories or histories or literature or artistic depictions even. There's less of this sort of fleshing out who they are and what their role is in society. So there are certain kinds of questions you can answer, especially statistical kinds of questions, right, with the, with the taxes and with the notarial registers, but kind of putting the human face on it is difficult. Um, in the Mamluk situation, it's completely the opposite. And the reason it's completely the opposite is because the Mamluk system, the, the government system, recruits slaves for government service and for rulership. So male slaves are brought to the Black Sea very young. They're given very intensive military training. And graduation from that training being freed, manumission, and being appointed to a post in the administration or the army, those happen all at the same time. That's one ceremony where they're freed from slavery, given a post, and they they have finished this intensive training. And then some of them go on to be very important people. Some of them go on to be rulers, right? The, the, the sultan of Egypt, the head of state, during most of this period is a former slave. So because they're important people, we have tons of information about them, biographies and histories and chronicles and everything you could want narratively talking about their lives. But there isn't this kind of statistical information. We don't know a lot about prices. We don't know a lot about taxes. We don't know a lot about sort of how these important individuals fit into the bigger population of slaves. Um, There aren't these contracts for buying and selling, right? So there's a lot more really rich and interesting anecdotal evidence, but there's not a lot of the statistical, you know, so how big are we talking about? How much money are we talking about? Those kinds of questions are much more difficult to answer. So putting them together was extremely helpful for getting a more well-rounded picture of how these two very different slave systems kind of fit together as they interact with the Black Sea. 
Right, and maybe um, one concrete example that was kind of interesting to me was uh, of this sort of uh, lacuna um, is that it's it's actually quite difficult, it seems like, to figure out to what extent Mamluks or Muslims themselves were actually selling slaves to the Mamluks. Well, so this is a question that people who have focused only on the European sources believed that it was mostly Italian merchants who were importing slaves um, to the Mamluks, right? That it was their ships, it was their merchants. They were showing up in the ports in Alexandria and Beirut and all these places with the slaves and then selling them in the local markets. When you look at Mamluk sources and only Mamluk sources, they don't talk about Italian merchants at all. They talk about local merchants, people who are you know, born in Egypt, born in Syria, et cetera, going up to the Black Sea and bringing slaves down. And then they also talk about people from within the Black Sea, right? People who were born in Anatolia or who were born in the Crimea or any of these regions taking slaves and bringing them down. But there's only one reference really to an Italian merchant in a Mamluk source. So depending on which source base you look at, you get a completely different view of who the merchants are who are supplying the Mamluks. So what I found by looking at them together is that when the the discussion about selling slaves to the Mamluks in European sources comes up essentially always in the context of the Crusades. So this is about criticizing Italian merchants for being bad Christians, basically, and undermining the cause of Christianity by selling slaves to the Mamluks who are going to go through this military training and become the leaders of the opposition to the crusading movement, right? So they, they have an ideological agenda when they're writing these sources. There are a few Italian merchants who are involved in this. Like I said, there is one reference in Mamluk sources to an Italian merchant who's bringing slaves. So this is this is not based on nothing. But if you take a bigger look at all of the merchants who are importing slaves to the Mamluks, the Italians are a very small number. Hmm. So they're not the most important group of merchants who are bringing slaves to the Mamluks, but from a European perspective, they're ideologically very important, even though numerically this is a sp- pretty small group of people. So they have kind of an outsized profile in the European sources. When you look at the Mamluk sources, you get a more well-rounded picture and you see that this is actually a pretty small group. Hmm. Now, as we mentioned, religion provides a sort of default overarching framework for legitimizing slavery, but um, as we sort of hinted at, religious difference could be either difficult to categorize or frankly just inconvenient for the prerogatives of um, the slaveholder uh, and slave merchant. So a sort of proxy category was race and also language. So can you talk a bit about how language and race provided, as you say, um, flexible and therefore convenient modes of perception? Sure. Yeah. And like I said, this is one of the reasons where I'm doing additional work. So in two or three years, I might have something different to say than what I'm going to say right now. But that being said, um, if the, the sort of legal basis of slavery in theory is religious difference, how do you prove what religion someone is? You know, if there's, if there's a question, if someone, you know, goes to the, to the court and this happened, there's a petitioning procedure for challenging your status as a slave, right? So if someone goes to the court and says, I have been wrongfully, illegally enslaved, how do you prove it? So there's an interior definition of religion that has to do with the individual's relationship to God, right? Which is not something that you can really prove in a court. Then there's exterior religious practices, right? Have you been baptized? Have you been circumcised? Can you, you know, say certain prayers that are sort of common prayers? Do you know how to perform the major rituals for your religion, right? So there are things that you could ask people to do. The interesting thing is that when these cases come up, when people petition about their status and say that they've been wrongfully enslaved, they don't get asked questions about religion. They don't get asked in what parish were you baptized. They don't get asked, are you circumcised? In that case, um, part of it is that a lot of the slaves are women, right? 
So that criteria wouldn't necessarily be useful. But even in the cases of male slaves, that, that doesn't seem to be something that they check, which is really interesting. What they ask instead is a lot of questions about what language do you speak? Where were you born? Who were your parents? Um, and then there are these labels, which I'm calling racial labels. You know, are you a Tatar? Are you a Bulgar? Are you a Greek? Are you a Sard from Sardinia? Are you a Saracen? You know, these kinds of labels seem to be relevant. So they're looking for this sort of indirect um, information about religion rather than direct information, which is what you would expect. And so this leads to some really interesting cases. There's one... Um, this is actually not from my area, but this is uh, an example that I came across in Deborah Blumenthal's book about slavery in medieval Valencia, which I just love, about a guy who was enslaved in Valencia. He had a big mustache and he spoke a language that no one could understand. And so everyone thought he was a Turk. And if he's a Turk, he must be a Muslim. And if he's a Muslim, then he's okay for Christians in Valencia to enslave. So he was enslaved there for a couple of years. And then at a certain point, some German merchants passed through town and they were actually able to speak to him. And they said, he, he doesn't speak Turkish, he speaks Hungarian, right? He has a big mustache and he speaks Hungarian. If he's Hungarian, then he's a Christian and then you can't enslave him in Valencia. And so he was freed on the testimony of these German merchants, right? So these are the kinds of assumptions people are making. There's another um, kind of a parallel example from North Africa I want to say it was Tunis, in Tunis. Um, there's a Christian ship that comes in with a bunch of Muslim captives that they're offering for ransom to the people in Tunis. And basically, if they're not ransomed, they're going to be taken somewhere else and sold as slaves. So the people in Tunis ransom everyone who speaks Arabic, but there's someone there who doesn't speak Arabic, and so they have no idea who this guy is, and they leave him on the ship. And then there's a visiting scholar coming through who is curious. So he goes on the ship and discovers that this guy speaks Turkish. And so they talk to each other a little bit in Turkish, and he establishes that this guy is a Muslim. He just happens to be a Turkish-speaking Muslim and not an Arabic-speaking Muslim. And so then he goes to the leaders of the local community and says, look, you have to ransom this guy. He's a Muslim, even though he doesn't speak Arabic. And they're shocked and embarrassed and horrified and go and ransom him immediately. Um, but there's this question about how language, it's not just about the ability to communicate, it's about the status of Arabic as the language of Islam. And if someone doesn't speak Arabic, are they going to be recognized as a Muslim? Maybe. It depends on who talks to them, right? But there's, there's this question about language, origin, these racial categories, and religion, and there are some assumptions about the way that those are all tied together. And when those are assumptions are violated, then you have people who are enslaved, even though they don't fit the medieval criteria for who should be enslaved. Now, you devote uh, a chapter to these, the sort of functioning of slaves and slavery within the enslaving societies, mainly of Genoa, Venice, and the Mamluk Sultanate. Um, and there's a ton in there, but let's focus on Italy, since we already kind of sketched out what Mamluk slaves do. Um, mm -hmm. And in Italy, uh, female slaves predominate um, pretty drastically. So yeah, can we start with the normative roles of slaves in the Italian peninsula? Sure. And this is actually something that is <clears throat> another part of the shared culture, right? The male slaves in the Mamluk empire get more attention because they're politically important people. I think the majority of slaves in the Mamluk Empire are also female, but we don't hear about them because they're not, quote unquote, important people, right? Um, so that being said, broadly speaking, in across the Mediterranean during this period that I'm looking at, slavery is mainly an urban phenomenon, and it's mainly domestic labor. So these are women who are cooking, cleaning, doing the laundry, doing the child care, running errands, fetching wood, bringing water, going to the ovens to get the bread, just all the housework, right? And they may be doing that for a family. Sometimes they are working for single men who haven't married yet. They're not going to do their own laundry. You can hire a free servant or you can buy a slave to just take care of all that housework, which is women's work, right? Um. So especially in those households where it's an enslaved woman and a free man who will probably eventually marry but hasn't married yet, 
there's also an expectation of sexual service, that ownership of a slave's body includes sexual ownership of their body. And so legally, there's not a concept that slaves would have consent, right? That, that That's not something that applies to slaves because their bodies are owned. So again, then it depends on the individual slave owner, whether they're going to act on this ownership capacity or not, but many of them clearly do. And this is understood to be legal and it's understood to be socially acceptable. So this is something that you hear more discussion about in the Islamic context, but it's happening equally in the Italian context. And that's something that I want to draw attention to. Right. And maybe uh, this springs into another area of this common culture, right? Because you know, this is on the one hand, obviously an extremely um, grotesque and oppressive practice. But on the other hand, um, these systems also provided certain opportunities that the slaves could manipulate to their benefits. And this was especially true um, in the context of reproductive labor, right? Right. And this is one of the areas of difference, actually. So in the Islamic context, An enslaved woman who has a child by her male master and he acknowledges paternity of the child, that enslaved woman gets a special status, which is called umwala. This is the mother, it literally means the mother of a child, right? So once, and, and this can be before the child is even born, if she's pregnant and her male enslaver says she's pregnant with my child, right? She gets this umwala status immediately. So this means that she can't be sold. There are certain kinds of work that she can't be asked to do. This is sort of an honor thing that she's not going to be able, she's not going to be asked to do sort of the dirtiest and most difficult kinds of work. And when the male enslaver dies, she's going to be free. So this is a path to eventual manumission, right? In the Italian case, there's no legal structure like that. Um, however, oh, and I should add, I'm sorry, in the, in the Islamic context, also the children are born free, right? If it's the child of an enslaved woman and a free man, and he acknowledges that the child is his, that child is born free and an equal heir to any other children that he may have. In the Italian context, there's no legal protection for the enslaved mothers of free men's children. The status of the children is complicated. So in theory, they're supposed to follow the status of their mothers. They should be enslaved as well. In practice, the later you get from the second half of the 14th century onward, more and more often these children are treated by default as being free, which is not legally what should happen. But in practice, that seems to be what happens. If they're acknowledged and they're sort of raised in the family, then they're treated as free children. And sometimes they're just able to be treated as heirs. Sometimes there needs to be a legal document to sort of officially designate them as heirs. But no one seems to be trying to claim them as slaves, which is really surprising because legally they should be able to, right? Um, So the protections that are available to the enslaved mothers, though, are really different um, between Christian societies and Muslim societies. Right. Yeah. I guess um, what I was remembering is is sort of what you just alluded to there, which is uh, chronologically over the, the period this book covers, you mentioned this curious phenomenon whereby the system in Italy comes to resemble um, what uh, has purchased in Mamluk, Egypt. Right. So I don't have a definitive explanation for that, but I have some theory. First of all, it's not just in Italy. You can see the same thing happening in Iberia as well. So this is sort of a a broader Mediterranean phenomenon. And I would be interested in knowing about what's going on in other societies as well. Italy and Iberia are the cases that I know the best. Um, The Iberian shift actually happens a little bit earlier, um, more in the 13th century. And then Italy is a little bit later in the sort of late 14th and definitely in the 15th century. It's very clear. Um. So there's a question about who's borrowing from whom and how, but the fact that this practice seems to be slowly spreading um, and that these are societies that buy and sell slaves from each other all the time and that buy and sell 
each other's members as slaves, right? There are plenty of instances where people could find out, you know, people from Iberia or people from Italy could find out that there's this practice in the Islamic world of treating children by enslaved women as free. Um, I think the, the pressure to actually do this comes partially out of the Black Death, right? This is a period where a lot of people lose all their children. And if you need some heirs and you need to get them quickly, having adopting your children by enslaved women as heirs is a way to have more children, to guard against the risks of infant mortality, to guard against the risks of infertility, right? If you can't have children with your free wife, where are you going to get children from? Um, so it's, it's partly in a world that's becoming more and more insecure. It's a way to have more children and more potential heirs and therefore get to a situation where by the time they're ready to inherit, you actually have a child who has survived to adulthood. Um, the other avenue where this may be coming is from the enslaved women, right? If, if in theory, at least, a large proportion of the enslaved women in Genoa and Venice are Muslim, then they know what the Muslim practices are, and they may be pushing for the status of their children. So that's as much as I can say. This is what I suspect is going on. I haven't found a source that really explains it in the way that I would like, but it's something that I'm looking for. Hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the process of enslavement in the Black Sea region. Um, mm-hmm. The two main areas that the sources discuss are um, raiding and, and captivity, and they also make a lot of um, mention of child sale, particularly because that was um, such a like lurid and barbaric practice in their eyes. So um, can you talk a little bit about what your research has revealed about the, um, you know, the extent to which these reports are true? Sure. So um, I would say the majority of slaves come from some kind of violent act of capture, right? And on the small scale, we would talk about that as kidnapping, you know, stealing a person violently, right? Then there's sort of a middle level, which I would call raiding. And then on the largest scale, it's warfare, right? What happens when you fight a war? You kill the men and you take the women and children captive. What happens to the women and children? How do you profit from that? Either you keep them as slaves or you sell them as slaves. So one of the reasons why a lot of slaves are coming out of this region during this period is, first of all, the Mongol conquest. How do the Mongols profit from their conquest? They sell a lot of people. And then you have big empires, Golden Horde, Byzantium, um, and you have small states. And it's the these small states in sort of these border areas are are vulnerable, right, to having their their inhabitants be taken captive in raids or in wars and be sold. And because these are small states, not very powerful, not very well connected, they're not really in a position to intervene to stop that. Um, there's a big burst of slaving that happens when there's a civil war in the Golden Horde, right? So these are different Mongol rulers and their subjects fighting each other. What happens to the people who are captured? They get sold. So war and raiding, sort of border raiding, is definitely a driver of the supply of slaves from this region. And the fact that this is a politically complex and not super stable region during this period definitely contributes to the fact that it's a source of slaves. Then there are these stories about the sale of children, about parents selling their children. And that tends to be attributed, sometimes it's attributed to poverty, that the parents in this area are just starving and, you know, scratching the ground for their food. And so they sell sell their children in order to be able to feed themselves and not have another mouth to feed. Sometimes it is connected with greed. Sometimes it's connected with barbarity, that these are just bad parents who don't take good care of their children and sell them, Right. So the problem is that all of these stories about selling children are coming from the sources of the people who are enslaving these children, right? So are they just telling this story as a justification? 
are they trying to say, you know, these are bad parents and therefore their children deserve to be enslaved, right? So at first I didn't take them seriously. Um, but there are Italian notaries who were based in these cities and these settlements, port settlements in the Black Sea, who were writing up documents of sale. And every so often, you come across a document that presents itself as a parent selling a child. And I have, I want to say five or six of those, which is not a lot. I mean, I have thousands of documents of slave sales and I have five or six from the Black Sea that present uh, a parent or, yeah, I think that, I think they're all parents. I think one of them was a brother selling a sister, but, but relatives selling their own relatives or their own children, right? And it's not just one example. It's enough examples to make me think that maybe this is something that actually happened. And there are also examples from the Mamluk context where the slaves, some of these boys who are enslaved go on to become very powerful and important people. They do something which is really unusual for societies with slaves. The ones who become very wealthy and very powerful try to get in touch with their families. And in some cases, they're successful. So there are a couple of stories about sultans, about women who became the, the chief wife of a sultan, right? So again, she's one of the most powerful and wealthiest women in the entire kingdom, who are able to go send a messenger back to the Black Sea to find their parents, their siblings, their aunts and uncles, and bring them to Egypt and settle them in their household in Egypt. So the Mamluk sources are more likely to talk about people selling their relatives in terms of, for, for reasons of greed, right? I wouldn't talk about it in terms of greed. But if there's a slave merchant who comes back to the same community on a regular basis and you know that your neighbor's grandson ended up being the governor of the city of Cairo and sent for your neighbor to come live in a palace in Cairo, maybe you would be more willing to entertain the possibility of selling one of your children to that merchant because there is this, this back and forth connection between the society where the slaves are coming from and the society where they end up being enslaved. That is a really unusual situation, though in Mamluk, Egypt. This is something that's kind of, I would say, unique to that particular slaving network. I do not think that people would sell their children to Italian merchants because the ones who go to Italy are not in a position to be sending for their families to bring them to live in comfort in Italy. That ends up being a very different kind of situation. Well, there's so much more we could discuss, but in the interest of time, maybe we could close uh, with the chronological close of this book and just sure. describe a little bit about how this um, robust, uh, you know, polyvalent system of slavery eventually disintegrated by the um, by the 16th century. Sure. So I, I put a closing date on this book of 1500, and that date is a little bit rough. Um, but essentially, we're talking about the second half, the second half of the 15th century, and what happens at that point is the growth of the Ottoman Empire. Right. Um, so. First, you have the conquest of Constantinople. Constantinople is the key because that's the strait for, for shipping slaves in and out, right? The conquest of Constantinople does not mean the end of the slave trade for anyone. What it means is you have to renegotiate the treaties, right? So in 1454, Genoese and Venetians and Mamluks are still exporting slaves through what's now Istanbul, through the strait. But the, the terms and conditions and the taxes and things like that have changed. However, the Ottoman court, like the Mamluk court, also makes a lot of use of slaves. This is a big urban area, and so there's a lot of demand for slaves for domestic work. And the Ottoman state would like, as a policy, not to be exporting all these slaves from the Black Sea to other parts of the Mediterranean. They would like to keep them for themselves. So, and at the same time, they're expanding territorially during the 15th century. So what happens in sort of slowly over the second half of the 15th century is the Ottoman takeover of the Black Sea, right? And so Genoa 
loses its colonies in the 1470s, the Venetian merchant communities, um, those ports get taken over and the Venetians get kicked out in the 1470s. So up until the 1470s, the Italian trade in Black Sea slaves is pretty healthy. By the end of the 1470s, they've been excluded and they have to go start looking for slaves somewhere else. They were aware that this was going to be a problem. Starting from even the 1440s, you start to see anxiety in Italian sources about what are we going to do if we lose our colonies, right? Um, where do they go? They go to West Africa. So there's this sort of shift in the, the sources of Italian slaves from the Black Sea. As they lose access in the Black Sea, they start pursuing access to other slaves in the Canary Islands in West Africa. Um, the Mamluks and the Ottomans for a couple of decades have a pretty good relationship. And so the Ottomans are happy to continue facilitating the Mamluk slave trade. As the Ottomans expand through Anatolia and they get into southern Anatolia and the sort of Turkish-Syrian border area, now they're bumping up against Mamluk territory. And so in you know the 1480s, the 1490s, 1500s, 1510s, there's a series of wars between the Ottomans and the Mamluks first over that border, and eventually the Ottomans conquer greater Syria and Egypt and make it part of the Ottoman Empire. That's what, 1621, um, early 16th century. So the slave trade starts to be restricted in the context of those wars, right? The slaves who are being imported, the ones who get the most attention are these military slaves. If you're the Ottomans and you want to weaken Mamluk military power so that you can expand your borders and eventually take them over, one of the ways you do this is by restricting their access to soldiers. So by the time you get to the to about 1500, the export trade in Black Sea slaves has been completely reconfigured. This is still an area where lots of people are being enslaved. This is still an area where lots of people are being traded as slaves, but now it's kind of going on within this Ottoman world rather than being exported to these other Mediterranean societies. So that's where I close the book because that is a sort of major both cultural and commercial reorganization. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you and I highly recommend the book to anyone interested in either slavery or um, this period and region of uh, the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Thank you.